If you would open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14, uh, and while you're going there, I have a confession to make. These sermons on Proverbs have been really difficult to prepare. I speak for Devin as well. Um, You could make a sermon out of each of the verses in Proverbs. And if you did that, it would take us 10 years to finish the book. So we pick longer sections and there's a lot to say. And we're trying to make it simple without making it simplistic, which is really hard. So, um, Bear with me, someone recently commenting on uh, these sermons said, you know, I I need more the Barney level of uh, these messages. And I thought, oh, that's intimidating. I don't know if I can get there. Uh, But what I would advise you is to get them, there's gonna be three big points out of this sermon today. And to, during the week, read through the text and see where you see those points and let them, let them work in your heart and let these words change your life. So let's pray. Lord, you gave us these words to help us, to open our minds and our hearts to the beauty and glory of who you are and how you've made us to live in this world. But these are old words, Lord, and can be hard for us to grasp. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would make these words plain to your people and that you would help me to do a good work of explaining what is here and applying it into our very hearts. So open our eyes and our minds now to hear your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The three big points of the sermon are built around three questions I'm going to introduce it with. The verse is, uh, have you ever made a joke that you really regretted? And the nervous chuckles say, yes. Here's another. Have you ever rejected advice because you just didn't want to be wrong only to find out later how really wrong you were here's another have you ever have you ever wondered why some people who lack money and good health are always cheerful and some people who have everything they need seem so stressed and grumpy Our passage in Proverbs today addresses all three of these common life experiences. Learning how to speak in different settings, learning how to listen to correction, learning how to live in joy are all topics that we face every day. Now, you will not find these topics in books that you would find in Barnes and Noble, but 
Proverbs is filled with wisdom to help us, help us to navigate life's complexities because life is complex. Our words, the advice we receive, our inner thoughts and feelings, is, this is all the stuff of life. And if we pay attention, we can learn to navigate these complexities of life. So let's do that today. Let's pay attention to what the Lord wants to teach us through these daily experiences. So the first section we will cover in verses chapter 14, verse 33 through chapter 15, verse 4, comes under the heading of wisdom and your words wisdom and your words now verses 33 to 35 if you see it's separated by a chapter break those create the setting for the teaching of verses 1 through 4 which is about words so let's start with the setting read verse 33 chapter 14 wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. So we see here that the wise are wise on the inside. Wisdom rests, or you could just as easily translate that, wisdom resides in your heart. It's not something you can store in a computer so you can find it when you need it. It's not, it's, it's what, it's what lives. Wisdom is alive in your inner life, so it can guide you in your outer life. So it resides there and is available when needed. A fool has no such resources to draw on. When you see the actions driven by his folly, wisdom only becomes apparent in the aftermath. His disaster becomes an example to avoid. The fool often sees wisdom after his folly. The wise have stored wisdom so that in that new situation, they know how to act. Bruce Waltke, a scholar on this book I really appreciate, he translates the verse this way. In the heart of the discerning, wisdom comes to rest. And in the midst of fools, she reveals herself. So wisdom is the internal architecture of your heart, only to be revealed when it's time to act, as we're going to see in a minute. Now, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs often pairs, verses will pair, wisdom and righteousness. Wisdom seeks to do the right thing, and if you want to do the right thing, you'll seek wisdom. So they, they work together in tandem. When an entire people walk in this righteous wisdom, the nation as a whole is elevated. The result is harmony, justice, and fairness among a people. This is what the Queen of Sheba recognized when she visited Solomon's kingdom. This is what people notice when they visit a church where wisdom and righteousness are a community project. 
we're all in this together. It creates something that is exalted, elevated, beautiful to look at. On the other hand, when a people as a people embrace sin, it leads to their reproach. They are disgraced. Sin, tolerated and then celebrated, inevitably leads to some people being harmed and all people being alienated from each other. And we are watching that movie right now in our own country of the United States. What was tolerated for a generation in the name of freedom is now celebrated and promoted and even required of those who see sin for what it is. We're a nation with great wealth, with dazzling technologies, with vast military power, but these things do not exalt a nation. Not in God's eyes. Not in reality. Eventually, we're going to find this out. Already, we can see the cracks in the foundation. So the context so far is our inner life and our national life. Now we look at the life of someone who must serve a person with political power. Verse 35, a servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath, the king's wrath, falls on one who acts shamefully. This servant deals wisely. Literally, it's the same word we saw in chapter 1, verse 3. He deals insightfully. He can see into the heart of the matter. The king respects his, servant, his servant's dealings on the king's behalf, so the king looks to him for counsel. But the servant who lacks wisdom better watch out, for his experience will be one of, be one of the king's deep anger. He cannot give good counsel or skillfully manage the king's affairs. So we see wisdom. First, we see that wisdom is, is an inner thing and that inner wisdom prepares you for outer action in any situation. And if such wisdom resides in an entire people, it will exalt them in the eyes of God and man. And for the man who's called to serve the highest executive in the land, he will draw on that wisdom and find success and favor with the boss. And now we see, now we're going to see this kind of wisdom both serving a king, exalting a nation, residing in the heart. How does it work when it comes to speech? Look at chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In an argument, your tone is important as your words. If you speak calmly and your words are measured to meet the person with respect, you are already on the way to a resolution. But if you are harsh with him, if you revile him, call him a fool, tell him his ideas are stupid, well, obviously you stir up his anger and the conflict escalates. Wisdom speaks softly, calmly. It speaks with respect. And now verse 2. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, 
but the mouths of fools pour out folly. You could translate commends as adorns, the tongue of the wise adorns knowledge. The wise speaks in a way that is fitting with his knowledge. He makes knowledge beautiful. He considers not just what to say, but how to say it so that his words not only fit the situation, but they fit with the person he's speaking to. That is a great skill. Fools do not consider the word, their words or their effects. Their words are uncontrolled. They rush out of their mouth. Verse 3 gives us the bigger context to our speech. Read it with me here. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The Lord sees all. He knows all. He hears the speech and sees the action of the evil and the good. Even if the one to whom we are speaking is the king, we realize that our words have a greater audience. God himself is listening. In verse 4, we learn that, the wise spe- that wise speech has a far greater impact than simply solving a problem. Read verse 4 with me. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. This word gentle means soothing or healing. It makes whole. The tree of life was in the garden of God where Adam and Eve lived before their sin brought their expulsion. A healing word restores some of the qualities of paradise in a broken world. Words can have such a beautiful, good effect on other people. On the other hand, speech that is perverse, speech that turns truth on its head, that deceives and misleads, ends up breaking the spirit like a broken bone. So there are psychological consequences to your speech. It can bring healing and life, or it can break a relationship and the inner life of another person. We need to think about this. Words can do great damage even though we cannot see the damage in the internal life of another person. And this breaking of the spirit, it, the, the, the writer doesn't make it clear. You've got to think about it. Does it break the spirit of the person who's been attacked with those words? Or does it break the spirit of the speaker? And I think the reason it's ambiguous is because it's both. You revile another. You disrespect another. You pour out words of bitterness on another. And it breaks your own spirit. So if you take wisdom into your heart, you'll be prepared to speak in any and every situation, in a conflict with your spouse or parent or child, in a tense meeting with your boss, in a disagreement with your neighbor. You'll have insight into the situation. You'll speak words that soothe and heal and lead to wholeness and harmony, not conflict and civil 
war. So this book is offering us wisdom in speech. So we have to take this wisdom into our hearts so that it produces the words that have these good effects. The second section deals with wisdom and advice. Wisdom and advice. Chapter 15, verses 5 through 12. Now I want to read all eight verses together and then I'll show you why they fit together as a unit. So beginning in verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the Lord loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Shoal and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. The scoffer does not want to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Now, the reason you can see this is a unit is because it begins with reproof. Whoever heeds reproof is prudent in verse 5, and it ends with reproof. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. The big picture here is that wisdom requires that you be open to other people showing you where you are wrong. Got to be open to being wrong. It doesn't mean that all the advice everybody gives you is right. It means that you are open to being wrong. As James says, we all stumble in many ways. The first person you should learn this from is your dad. It's right there in the text. A father's instruction. If you're a fool, you will not only ignore his instruction, not only reject it, you'll despise it. You will call what is good worthless or even evil. This is the temptation of every generation growing into adulthood. And there are fathers in this church I so deeply respect raising your children right now. And I would encourage you guys, listen to your dad. Listen to your mom. They're wise. All right. So verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction. The heeding, but heeding the instruction and reproof of your father is shrewd. Look at the second half of the verse. Whoever heeds reproof is prudent. The word prudent refers to having a well thought out plan that leads to success. If you're prudent, you think, okay, what's the situation here? How are we going to deal with this? And you think it through, you think all the eventualities out, and you come up with a good idea. That's what wisdom does. It makes you 
prudent. In verse 12, we learn that a fool scoffs at wisdom simply because he doesn't like being wrong. So he avoids the wise and seeks out, and here I'm quoting again Bruce Walke, those who offer self-love, flattery, and frivolity, and do not depend on God, truth, and righteousness. Okay, so you, you go, the fool goes out and says, who can I get counsel from who already agrees with me? Where the righteous says, I need instruction. I need authoritative teaching to guide me. In verses 6 and 7, we learn that listening to reproof has an effect on your wealth and how you spread your wealth to others. So verse 6, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Verse 6 hints at the fact that treasure is more than money. And the way it hints at it is that the second half refers to the income of the wicked. That's clearly about money. What the wicked think is treasure only brings them trouble. But the righteous store up the kind of treasure that brings joy, satisfaction, friends, a harmonious family. Money may help but money is not the source or the essence of your treasure. Whoa, could we not spend an hour on that one? Are we not constantly told that money can buy your safety, your happiness, your peace? Verses 8 and 9 form the theological heart of this section of Proverbs. Hearing reproof, finding wisdom, gaining treasure, all must be sought in the context of what the Lord loves and what the Lord hates. So let's look again at verses eight and nine. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Now, people make sacrifices all the time, and they make those sacrifices with intent. That intent may be to earn favor, to gain something you want from somebody else, or that intent can be to express dependence and thanksgiving. The wicked make sacrifices to God thinking that they can earn his favor. They treat God like he can be manipulated. This we learn in verse 9 is just another result of the way of life of the wicked. God considers such approaches to him and his favor an abomination. This word abomination rever refers to God's maximum revulsion. Things that he finds maximally offensive to who he is and what he wills for us. Proverbs calls the sacrifices of the wicked an abomination. If you follow the word throughout Scripture, you'll find 
included in the abomination list. There is perversity, deceit, hypocrisy, wickedness, and pride. These are things that God hates. Sacrifices that aim at earning strike at the heart of the gospel. They come with the expectation that God's favor can be forced. But God comes to us only by grace. A gift undeserved. Jesus came to pay what sinners can only pay with their own eternal death. And He made a sacrifice for us while we were dead in our sins and unable to resurrect ourselves. We cannot pay to escape His judgment. He can. Jesus' sacrifice was not required. He wasn't forcing God's hand to manipulate Him. The Father sent Him to die, and He came willingly to die. Not in some cruel and twisted justice, but out of love. Justice driven by love. So earning is anathema to the Lord. But our dependence on Him is His delight. In verse 8, Prayer is an expression of dependence. The upright finds God's acceptance, his favor, his favorable response when he comes to God, not as deserving, but as needy and undeserving. The Lord loves the one who pursues righteousness by heeding reproof, by spreading his wealth around, by praying. Verses 10 and 11 show us that the consequences of rejecting wise reproof go beyond consequences in this life. Verse 10, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. And then connected right to that, right into that, verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. So there is severe discipline for those who forsake the way, the way of life. The alternative is hating reproof, which is the way of death. As you've seen, as we've seen in Proverbs, life is a journey. Life is a journey. We are sinners and prone to folly. As we walk, we either pursue wisdom, embrace reproof, and conform our lives to the Lord and His ways, or we will eventually experience the ultimate consequence of eternal death. So this is not minor stuff. This is not like how to win friends and influence people. This is like life and death stuff. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the dead, the place where all the dead dwell. Abaddon seems to be a place that is reserved for the wicked. The name refers to a place of destruction. If the Lord sees and controls this place, how much more does he see and control your life, your inner life? So don't hate reproof. Embrace reproof. Learn to treasure words of painful correction, knowing that they will lead you down the path to life. We need each other. 
Oh, to have the gift of wise counselors who are not flatterers. It's such a gift. People who love you but refuse to just tell you what you want to hear. You want to find those kind of friends. Now we come to the third section of our text today, wisdom and your inner life. Verses 13 to 19. Now I began this sermon by saying that you cannot find books on these three topics in your local bookstore. That does not seem to be the case in the next section. Our world is filled with advice on how to transform your inner life, how to find your happy place, how to free yourself from toxic relationships and find inner peace. Meditation and mindfulness are watchwords we are called to heed all the time. We live in an age obsessed with how we feel on the inside. So let's see what the Bible offers as a key to an inner life shaped by wisdom. Verse 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil. But the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Notice the word heart appears four times in these three verses. And the word cheerful appears twice. Verse 13 states the obvious. Internal happiness brings a smile to your face. Internal sadness will crush your spirit. Proverbs assumes, now get this, okay? Proverbs assumes that it is within our human ability to direct our inner life just as we can direct our outer life. So you are not a slave to your difficult thoughts. You can direct them. Verse 14 tells us that if we direct our inner life to gaining knowledge, it will affect how we feel. The alternative is to feed on folly. So verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. So a wise heart says, I'm going to find out what knowledge says to my sad situation. I'm going to seek this out. I want to learn why is my inner life the way it is. The fool, on the other hand, eats whatever is before him. So when it says he feeds on folly, the the picture there is of a, a sheep or a cow in a pasture eating. And in this case, like a sheep who grazes in a pasture, eating whatever he finds in front of his face, he ends up eating what is poisonous. Okay, so we're called to seek knowledge about our inner state, not just to feed on whatever might be before us. 
So what we're looking for, what are we looking for? What are we looking for as we seek knowledge about our inner life? Proverbs makes you think. That's what these verses do. They make you think, okay, what's he getting at here? Why does he say it that way? Why is he connecting these two verses together? We're stretching to see the world through God's eyes. We're pushing through the weeds of this world to know how God interprets our situation. We're listening to his promises to see what the ultimate outcome may be. And so we learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we may be depressed, we may be anxious, we may be angry. We let the fear of the Lord guide our thoughts. We let his word to us define the realities we face. So our inner life requires work. The psychologists of our day would say the same thing. But the Bible doesn't call us to look inward. This is so interesting. The Bible doesn't call us to look at our circumstances so we can change our inner condition. The Bible calls us to look up, to see the Lord in all His wisdom and beauty and power. So if you're sad, you're not going to be able to analyze all your sadness and come up with a way to be delivered from it. You look up, you take your inward life and force it up despite the sadness, and there you find knowledge. The first half of verse 15 seems obvious. All the days of the afflicted are evil. The word evil comes with the nuance of wretched. When we face affliction, we feel wretched. But the second half gives us a promise that in the midst of our affliction, we can find joy. Look at 15, part 2. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast. A heart that seeks knowledge finds reasons to be happy that transcend the situation that has brought you to your wretched state. You can feast at the table of the Lord. Find joy and satisfaction in His words that define your situation. Words that comfort you in your affliction. Words that promise you a final outcome of joy and blessedness. You can. Now, we have a vivid and living demonstration of this in our own Sharon Pyle. Cancer is a cruel affliction. There's no way getting around that. It slowly eats away at your body. It causes mysterious and often severe pains. And the treatment can be just as painful and mysterious as the disease. And in that condition of wretchedness, you can be obsessed with doctor's reports, lab results, statistics of remission and death. You can focus on every new ache in your body. And I want to add, all of that is understandable. Okay? 
But in the midst of your affliction, you can look up. Rather than grazing on medical reports, you can feed on knowledge, eternal knowledge, not the knowledge of the scientists of this earth. Sharon, in her affliction, has learned to look up. She feeds on the Word of God. She prays. She finds joy in the midst of her affliction. And if you're a member of this church, you have a living demonstration that you know. Watch her. Learn from her. Now, I am not saying, I'm not trying to present Sharon that she has some kind of unreal, giddy happiness that erases pain and removes all fears and sins from her life, okay? She remains a Christian sinner like the rest of us. And she has fears like the rest of us. But we've watched her take those fears, take those pains, look up, and declare what is true and ultimate beyond the circumstances of her cancer. It's a fight. It's a daily fight for a heart that's renewed by knowledge. My prayer is that the Lord will use her example for all of us to point us to the path that leads to a feast in the midst of affliction. For all of us will face affliction. Verses 16 through 19 give us four illustrations of how the knowledge of God and his ways can allow us to be cheerful in the midst of affliction. Verse 16 speaks of money. Look at verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. With the fear of the Lord, you can have just enough for today and have a cheerful heart. With great wealth comes anxiety. The word trouble speaks to the complications of having more than you need. You worry about losing it. Other people want it. You are unsure how to spend it and when to spread it around to others. You come to realize that money does not make you safer and the things it buys do not bring happiness. Verse 17 speaks of relationships. Better is a dinner of herbs where there is love than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A simple meal of rice and beans, Cheerios and milk, enjoyed around a table of people who love one another is far better than a table spread with the finest Argentinian beef money can buy if your life is filled with conflict, rivalry, and the bitterness of broken relationships. That's the treasure. The treasure we seek is the love of God and to be joined to people who we love and who love us. That's the wealth. That's where the feast is, even if you're having just a simple meal. Verse 18 speaks of conflict. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. I don't know if you realize this, but quarrels are generated by people, not problems, not circumstances. 
with the knowledge of God, the fear of the Lord, you can respond to an offense or an accusation of wrongdoing with patience. A hot-tempered man is ruled by the situation. A man who resolves conflict is ruled by the fear of the Lord. He leads toward peace and harmony in justice. Do you see how the inner life affects each of these things? Our inner life affects how we think about money. Our inner life affects our relationships. Our inner life affects conflict. And then verse 19 speaks of effort. The way of a sluggard is like the head, a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Seeking the knowledge of God leads to joy, but you must seek. It's a path, not a button to press, and out pops happiness. But with God's wisdom controlling where you go, God's wisdom controlling your inner life. The way forward is always clear, at least for the next step. You can walk with confidence. A hedge of thorns in the world of this book was a fence made out of thorn bushes. It's there to keep people and animals out of a field. It's impassable. You can't get through it and it causes many cuts and punctures in your skin if you try. The sluggard is not a person who does nothing. Like the fool feeding on folly, he does the easy thing. He takes the advice that seems easiest, and then he finds himself punctured in the thorn bush, and he complains that his path only brings pain and no success. So there's the chapter of Proverbs. What we see is that wisdom in the book of Proverbs is not intellectual, but it requires that you think. Wisdom is not mechanical, though you must act. Wisdom is grounded in a relationship with God that allows you to see Him, to see yourself, often needing reproof, and to see the world and the people in it through His eyes. With His knowledge, you can act wisely. You can speak wisely in any situation. You can hear words that correct you and teach you. And you can speak words that help others when they stray from the path of life. You can find joy in any and every situation, even in the midst of affliction. So Solomon wants to ask you today, will you follow this path? Will you make the effort to find knowledge? Will you live in the fear of the Lord to the point that you have internalized wisdom in a way that shapes not only your inner life, but it becomes evident in how you speak and act. It becomes so evident that it affects the expression on your face. Why is she smiling when her life is so hard? This is the path that the Lord puts before you but you must choose to walk in it. And the promise is that it ends in eternal life. 
with the afflictions and temptations and conflicts of this world behind us as we dwell with our brothers and sisters in the city of God where Jesus is, the man of sorrows who suffered affliction and defeated death. The afflicted man who lived in the fullness of joy. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, His words always fitting, His reproof always spot on, His joy underlying even His agony on the cross. Please pray with me. Lord, we... We acknowledge we lack wisdom. We acknowledge we don't have it all together. We acknowledge that often our words make the situation worse, not better. Lord, we confess that we would rather hear flattery than truth about ourselves. And we acknowledge that our inner life needs attention for often we neglect the feast that you set before us even in the midst of hardship. And so we pray that you would make us wise. Make us wise as individuals. Make us wise as a church so that the beauty and harmony of the Holy Trinity would be evidences of it would exist in us as an entire community. Make us like this, we pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.